Mobilising Ideas to Change the World, the podcast of the Socialist Workers' Party. Each week we'll be bringing you original content and analysis of the social, economic and cultural questions facing the world today. Angela Davis, um, I think when anyone reads her autobiography, your start is with her being on a run from the FBI on the most wanted list. And I think it's absolutely amazing read. I would recommend everyone has a read of it. Um, and what that book did to me is start in my love slash somewhat obsession with Angela Davis. Um, for me, seeing a black woman and a revolutionary, an activist, both being an activist and a writer meant incredible amount to me when I became first active. So who is this woman on the most wanted list? Um, why did she become a symbol of struggle and solidarity across the world? Who is the legendary, legendary Angela Davis? Um, so Angela Davis was born in 1944 in Birmingham, Alabama, on, um, in an area in the 1950s that was described for being bombed a number of times um, in order to intimidate and drive out the new middle-class families, black middle-class families who was moving in to the area. <coughs> like her neighbours, Angela wrote about um, her father trying to protect the household by having a gun and sitting on the porch outside. And, and also the area's nickname, Bominum, um, by Martin Luther King, uh, describing Birmingham as probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. And in the 1963, it was the key location for the civil rights movement, and it became a national turning point on the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. Um, four young girls between the age of 14, 11 and 14, were murdered by the KKK, two of them are uh, known by Angela um, and she writes in her book she was at France at that point but she writes in her book about her mother going and helping uh, one of the mothers pick up their daughters to see what was there and what was actually happening um, and what it really shows is that Angela's childhood uh, was surrounded by racism violence, fear and resistance and it shaped her politics and who she became uh, she won a scholarship um, and she went on to study uh, philosophy. And when she started studying and she went to university, one of her lecturers was a key influence to her. He taught her you could be an academic, an activist, a scholar, and a revolutionary. She then went on to travel to France, Switzerland, Germany, where she became a part of the socialist students um, group fighting against the Vietnam War. Angela continued her studies when she went back to the second year and decided to do a master's in French, alongside philosophy. I admire her for doing those two. I couldn't do that. Um, she then wanted to return. Uh, on her return, she was drawn and interested in the new formation of the Black Panthers Party. The Black Liberation Movement had begun to move away from the non-violent approach of the civil rights movement and its limitation, and it began to be shaped by socialist ideas. In 1968, um, she earned her master's degree and a doctorate in philosophy and by 1969 she became an acting assistant professor at the University of California in the philosophy department and at that time she also became a member of an all-black branch of the communist party and I think in order to understand why she joined the communist party you have to understand the role they played 
They played a massive role, a part of the anti-racist movement and campaigns, um, and a number of their members lost their lives um, being anti-racist. They gave her a basis of understanding oppression, exploitation, and importance of class, and she understood the means of fighting that. She later did leave in 1991. Unfortunately for um, Angela at the Angela at that time, um, Ronald Reagan was the um, governor of California, and alongside the board of the university, uh, they tried to get Angela uh, fired on the grounds of being a part of the Communist Party, and that didn't work out. Um, and then, they tr even though the stigma of being a Communist member was still somewhat around, but it didn't proceed uh, to the same extent as it was years before. And what it really led to was massive resistance across the campus where thousands, thousands of students would attend her lectures in solidarity. And the call was dismissed by the judge, but Ronald Reagan and the board continued to target Angela Davis and successively got her fired due to her language during speeches referring to the police as pigs and so forth. And on, <coughs> nine, on October 13, 1970, she came head-to-head head with the prison system and Angela had always been a part of activism, even outside of academic stuff. Uh, she was a part of the local community, wider movement. She had become a strong supporter of the prison inmates of the Soldan Brothers um, prison. I assume they were brothers when you read it in the book, but they're technically not. It's just the prison's name and they're just a group of guys. So, yeah, just so everyone knows when they read it. Um, and then, like, later on, she came head-to-head -head with the prison system. Angela has always... And even up to this day, it's a campaigner in order to get rid, rid of um, the prison system, not to reform it, but completely demolish it. And why did she come head-to-head -head with it? Um, an FBI agent in New York uh, City um, had found Angela um, after she was put on the most wanted list. The prime president at that time, Richard Nixon, <coughs> congratulated the FBI agent of capturing a terrorist, Angela Davis. Um, and where did, why was she on the list in the first place? Where did it all stem from? On the 14th of August 1970, uh, there was an arrest warrant issued for Angela Davis after a heavily armed 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson, um, who was the brother of George Jackson, uh, one of the three Solomon brothers, gained access to a court in California, armed three of the defendants, uh, took hostage uh, three female juries and a judge, um, and it led to a shootout between the police where the judge was shot and the three men. Um, but what's quite interesting is that Angela's like, prosecuted on the basis of the murder of the judge and the death of the three men are completely dismissed and not regarded as anything. Um, so several of the firearms used in the attack were purchased by Angela Davis. And by the state of California, whether she was actively involved or not or part of the attack, uh, she was incriminated. Um, so, later on, uh, she was put out at a restaurant for aggravated kidnapping, first-degree murder, and the death of the judge. Um, yeah, and four days later, she was found on the FBI's most wanted list. And I kind of like this fact. She was the third woman to ever be on the most wanted list. So it kind of shows she's doing something okay-ish. <laughs> she's on it. Um, Two days later, she, four days later, she was found um, after 
Four days later, she was put on the most wanted list, and two months later, she was arrested after travelling around the whole of the states during the night, um, uh, being accompanied by comrades and being helped to support it through. On the 5th of January 1971, she appeared in the magistrate in the court um, and declared herself as innocent. And during her 16-month period in prison, she spent in solitary. She spent some of it in solitary confinement at a women's detention centre. And I think for me, reading her autobiography, it really shows the extent that the state would go to to ensure that she wasn't interacting or being a part of the other uh, prisoners. It shows their fear of her as an individual, her ability to also um, raise the consciousness of the other um, inmates and also uh, mobilise people. And I think that's a tribute to her, in a sense, the fact that they had to go to that extent. But she was just a symbol of what it meant. Um, there's this image that I found that I absolutely love. Um, of Somali women in Mogadishu protesting for the release of Angela Davis in 1972. Um, so my family's from Somalia. See that picture meant incredibly a lot to me. Um, so yeah, and it, it really shows that the whole world was encapsulated for the freedom of her. Um, Aretha Franklin wrote a song. Uh, Aretha Franklin offered to pay her bill. John Lennon and Yoko Ono wrote a song uh, called Angela Davis. And I think it really shaped the mood um, and people came together. On the 4th of June, 1972, um, after 13 hours of deliberating, all the white juries returned to declare a verdict of not guilty. Um, the guns, even though they were purchased under her name, um, wasn't a central part, a uh, significant uh, reason uh, to say that she had a major role in the plot. But what is quite shocking is the fact that the man had, could have easily led to the death of Angela Davis, and thankfully it didn't, and she went on to write incredible books like Women, Race and Class, which I am going to be talking about. The book is rich with history, uh, reality, and the experience of black women in the States for decades. Um, it, gets, it starts straight away. Like I think once I was reading, I was like, okay, is this how we're going to... I like to call her Angie because I feel like we're friends, even though she doesn't know me. <laughs> it's like we have a weird. I have a conversation with her. So that sounds creepy, not in that sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the book starts straight away, and she talks about the experience of black women. Um, so first of all, she talks about the ordeal faced by uh, women who were slaves, the working hours that they faced, the, the heat. The story that we always hear so many times that we are aware of, but what she does more is talk about really painting them, the image of them, not only being subhumans, but being animals, being to substitute the burden of pulling trans in the southern miners. And I think what Adela does very well throughout the book is enforce that the experience of slave women is not only just their experience, there's other people who have in, like somewhat connected links to them. It's like it's a unique thing, but there is connections throughout the world. And she refers to the reality, um, she makes a reference and a connection to the horror that white uh, female labourers in the UK um, had suffered. And Karl Marx talks, she makes a reference to Karl Marx um, in Capital, where he says, in England, women are still occasionally used as horses, to hell, um, cattle boats, um, because the labour produced for horses and so forth. It goes on. But like, what he's clearly saying is that 
the women are made to be as horses the exact same way as slave women in the South were. Um, and then what she also <coughs> talks about is the exploitation they face and the double burden of being a, a woman, the sexism, the control of their reproductive system, not necessarily at the hands of their male counterparts and other slaves, but at the hands of their masters and owners. And the use of race and sexual assault as a weapon, and as a means of in- intimidation and like uh, gaining control. And I think what interests me the most about the book is how stereotypes of racist ideas about the slaves and the slave trade and what, what came from it has now really fundamentally shaped the sexuality of both black and, um, black and women, black men and women, um, still to this day. That view of black men being um, quite dangerous, out of control, um, and that we have to control them as somewhat animals is still used today and it's also been transferred to Muslim men saying the language around refugees say that who are predominantly Muslims say that we can't let them in because they have backward views, they're sexist, they're homophobic, and if they come here they will rape our women. And I think it's absolutely <coughs> disgusting, but it shows the, how racism and sexism <coughs> can come together. And I think what it sh- also shows um, is that how the men will see this one way, but also the women will see this like quite sexual in a necessary manner where they were like hypersexualized um, and it completely overshadowed the reality that the slave woman had to face of daily rape and sexual assault at the hands of their masters and the master's sons and so forth. And I think this meaning of black women being hypersexual still remains with us. I think it gets me incredibly angry when um, certain feminists like attack artists like, I love, I'm not going to lie, I love Beyonce. And, but, like, when people attack Beyonce and Nicki Minaj and just say, oh, they're being too hypersexualized, it's, it's somewhat of a... They won't necessarily say about a different artist. So you're, it's interesting the way they attack them. And I think we have to understand that um, sex, um, sexism is rife and sex sells in capitalism. And that the wins that were gained by the women's liberation movement have been repackaged and sold back to us. And made in this way that we see it today and I don't think it's right to attack individuals but understand the whole structure of sexism and racism that capitalism produces and which we live in. Um, so the book lines up this, uh, also links up the sexuality of slave women and men with the structure of the family. I think the stereotype of black families, black men being sexist and black families not having a leading male figure still remains with us today. I think, um, like, in terms of when you talk about, in the UK, when you talk about the question of knife crime, one of the arguments is that there's not necessarily a leading black figure within the household. That's why these young men are becoming, like, being active in this manner. And I think we have to completely dismiss that, say (coughs) the reality is, like, you're cutting down community centres for these kids and so forth. But I think that is still ingrained with us. So you see how it comes from the slave trade and how she outlines it. Um, because women, the slave women, wouldn't necessarily write down the name of the fathers or may sometimes have kids out of wedlock or it may just not have been on the records. Um, so, yeah, and I think uh, it's what we kind of miss and we don't really see or don't hear about is the reality and the experience that the slave family um, and the shared roles, I think, it was somewhat of a safe haven for people, I guess, um, where both men and women cooked 
uh, were hunting and were a sense of having an equal household. Um, and I think that's, yeah. Um, and it also, she goes on to talk about the reproduction system of slave women. Um, and in the eyes of the uh, slaveholders, the women were not mothers at all. They were just simply instruments to uh, guarantee the growth of their labour force. They weren't, they weren't mothers, they were breeders to them. And when there was worry about the abolishment of international slave trade, began to threaten the expansion of the, um, the new industry, I think the slaveholding class were forced to rely on the natural reproductive system um, in order to create a new means of population um, as slaves and so forth. And I think that's where racism is really deep-rooted, where black people were enslaved, but also where racism plays a role that they were not only enslaved, but it led to the enslavement of their kids and to justify generations on. And I think Angela talks about, um, and writes about the control of women's reproduction um, in general. And I think if you heard about what happened to... I think everyone saw... I saw an Instagram, so I don't know if everyone saw it, uh, of the black woman in Alabama who was shot um, in an incident. And instead of, like, shooter being arrested, she was arrested because it led to the death of her five-month uh, baby she, which she was pregnant with. And I think that really shows what the role of the, the um, new abortion leg legislations mean, where a woman who has been shot and who has lost her child is then um, sent out for manslaughter, even though it's been dropped, but I think it's sent shockwaves across the country. Um, in the book, Angela talks about in 1931, over 30 states had a law that allowed forced uh, sterilisation for black and Hispanics and poor women. Um, and I think, yeah... Um, and I think she doesn't um, only talk about the experience of slave women and the reality they face, but also the struggle that they were a part of. And she talks about Claudia Jones, one of the leading people in, uh, who came to the UK later on, uh, and who was one of the leading people in the Notting Hill Carnivals, which is still going on today. But she also highlights the struggle between the Black Liberation Movement and the self-rejects. I think for me growing up, I always agreed... Of, thought that I would fight for um, women's equality but I wouldn't have necessarily described myself as a feminist I think growing up I always just saw feminism as something quite a white middle class woman does and it had like I don't know where those ideas came but they were very sunk in and I think um, there is, for me growing up I always thought they were somewhat disconnected from the struggles of black women or women of ethnicity and, and I think that's where people have but um, what is completely not taken into account is how most people don't know how the self-rejects movement in the state was born out of solidarity for slave women. White women joined the abolishment movement, especially because they were outraged by the sexual assault on black women. Um, and I think what they do necessarily is create the slave woman as a victim. And I think... I don't agree, but I don't also like the term of like strong black women. Of course, most black women are incredibly strong, but why do they have to fundamentally be strong? What is it in our society that makes the black woman have to feel that we have to constantly fight and resist? And I think, yeah, so I think that narrative is quite wrong. But what it does, um, in her book, she talks about a, a, a leading book called Uncle Tom a Cabin, which um, Abraham Lincoln described as the starting of the Civil War. But 
what the book led to loads of people rallying around um, and being a part of the abolishment movement and incredibly a large amount of women. Um, in the book, there's a woman who's perceived... Oh, ten minutes, cool, yeah. As a woman who's perceived as quite naive, um, her child is taken away from her to be sold on and she goes to incredible extent to get her child back. And in the book, they refer to her as this, like... She gets those strengths and those powers just because she's a mother... But in reality, it's decades and histories of being a part of the slave trade and, and the reality she faced. Um, yeah. And it led to a number of... That book led to a number of middle-class women being a part of the slave, um, the abolishment movement. But when they joined, what they faced was a war and a, they had to fight for their voices to be heard. Um, and I think a sense of them feeling that we, in order to actually make fundamental change, we have to get a sense of power for ourselves. And that's where arguments began um, for the directions, where some self-rejects leaders were willing to take on individuals' personal racist ideas for the sake of the self-rejects movement and dismiss the reality and experience of black women. Or where there was a where the media and the wider state created a competition between uh, the self-rejects movement and the black liberation movement. And there was also a fight for power for the movement. Frederick Douglass, um, one of the first men to stand up for women's <coughs> liberation at a... <coughs> oh, oh, oh. I forgot my, my PowerPoint, that's a shame. <laughs> Frederick Douglass, um, who was a black man, uh, played an incredible role for the women's liberation movement. Um, he stood with the voices of women in order to, um, to, liber to liberate everyone. But when it came down to the question of black men gaining the vote or women gaining the vote. He stood with men gaining, black men gaining the vote on the basis of the violence that they had to face <coughs> on a regular basis and said by gaining the vote that they would have a sense of freedom and in order to control. Um, and his ideas were quite limited by reformism. reformism. Um, and what he saw was that the Republicans were somewhat sending a level of support, but in reality they just wanted to gain three more million voters. And um, what was interesting about the battle between uh, the civil rights movement uh, was that Longstreet's um, famous, uh, famous um, speech about entire women. I think throughout the movement, whether it be the black liberation movement for the fight for men to have, black men to have the right, or the self-rejects movement, <coughs> the fight for women to have the right, was the voices of black women. And I think her speech is incredibly great. There's like two points that I love uh, where she talks about one man saying that women don't uh, need help getting out of the carriage, so why should they be given the vote? And she says how she has always gone out on herself and gone on to the mug. And there's another point where I don't know how someone would use Jesus as a means of not giving women a vote, but they did. And her response that Jesus was created by both God and a woman, men had no role to play in it. I was like, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I think, she, yeah, and I think her, it remains quite an important um, feat. I think what also is shown in the book is the true solidarity between both black and white women for the fight of education. Um, so I, the quote from Angela is that, aided by the white sister alliance, black women played an indispensable role in creating this new fortress. The history of women's struggle for education in the United States 
reach a, a true point when black and white women together led, uh, together led the Civil War uh, battle against illiteration in the South. Their unity and solidarity prevailed and confirmed one of the histories, um, our history's most fruitful promises. Yeah. So, so the book is called Woman, Race, and Class, and it talks about the experience of black woman faith. But what is interesting is throughout the book, Angela talks about the role of class and the importance. And I think she should have been a bit more forthcoming with it. Um, she does do it quite subtly, but like there's points where you just want her to say it outright. Um, and I think some people may see the book as a means of just talking about the inter intersectionality of oppression. And I think what Angela does is try to show that um, class is not of another form of oppression, but a means of exploitation and unity. Um, and I think when we are talking about the question of intersectionality, people can see it in a number of ways, whether that the individuals have multiple oppressions, like, let me just use myself for example, so being a woman there, being Muslim there, being black there, but there's another sense where people talk about them all coming together. If there was a graph, if we could do a graph, like, you know when they all come together, those circles? I should have just drawn one out. Uh, like, all come together, there's a particular point where they're all interlinked, and I think some people view it in that sense. Um, and I think that is important to understand oppression, but what it also does is r remain at a level of description. Um, we have to go beyond that. And I think it also dismisses the reality sometimes that not all women share the same experience, not all women have the same interests. Uh, so whether that be me and Michelle Obama, we're both black women, but we have completely different interests in about the world and what we want to do with it and how we want to change it. Um, and I think intersectionality is closely linked with the uh, white privilege theory, and that's a tool to, and sometimes can be used as a tool to divide, saying if a woman speaks out, um, even though you're a woman, you're not necessarily, let me oh, think, like, disabled or, enough, like, you're not necessarily taking other forms of oppression, so you have to step back a bit. And I think it's quite limited in that sense. And what we have to do is understand that um, there is a, understand oppression and understand the reality of what people think and how oppression works and the source of oppression, but not see it in isolation. We have to understand how uh, oppression changes, changes throughout history and how to overcome it by rooting uh, oppression in a class uh, society. We're able to see the capability and the power of the working class within capitalism. I think when the working class come together and unite um, it's not on basis of that we're all the same, but the working class has a common and shared relationship with capitalism. And in order to buy together, we can destroy it and get rid of it and fundamentally get rid of sexism, racism, and so on. Yeah, I think that's how I wanted to end. Yeah, so like, at the end of the day, when we come together and fight back together, that's when we're the most strongest as the working class because we have a, a unifying point. And really, truly, to get rid of racism and sexism, we have to. And I think... By just working as individuals or different oppressed groups, we're just going to face the same regulations or systems being put in place. I think women have constantly fought for the abortion right laws uh, to happen, but you see throughout the world that they're being placed back and women have to fight again. And we've always fought against racism, but you now, again, 
want to see the growth of the far right and we have to fundamentally understand how it's the root of capitalism and we have to get rid of it. So, yeah, I think that's where I wanted to end. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of things really um, to um, delve into with that. Um, I wanted to just start with, I mean, it's something that um, inspires me quite a lot. Uh, Name spoke a lot about feminism and why, you know, people don't necessarily identify with feminism, um, even though they are absolutely committed to women's liberation and fighting um, women's oppression. I mean, there's something to be said about women's oppression. Um, I agree with the statement that uh, the best way to understand uh, the society we live in um, is through the eyes of women. The person who said that um, is Leon Trotsky. The reason why he said that is out of recognition that women's oppression is the most entrenched in society and you know it's the one that actually exists from the beginning of you know human civilization whereas you know things like racism and so on we can actually date these uh, back to more modern times and you know there's lots of meetings really talking about these uh, different things uh, at marxism so i encourage people to look um but in being you know the most entrenched um oppression it means that you know that sort of um double experience that uh Nemo was talking about that's where it really comes in and so the importance of women in struggle and leading struggle is absolutely key. And, you know, the legacy of Angela Davis that she's still laying out um, is an important one to discuss, really. Um, but I think, you know, the reason why, you know, we, we want to talk about particularly her book, Women, Race and Class, is exactly because of uh, what name set out, you know, the argument that really sort of sees actually all oppressions as existing um, in order to exploit everyone, uh, whether you uh, face an oppression um, or not. Um, and I think, you know, what that means to people, okay, if you um, agree with this or what, I mean, this is why I think there's a point to uh, really a revolutionary party rather than you know, individual pressure groups and, and so on, because, you know, all of these things in society, they're not... Um, separate issues um, whatsoever, actually, they all um, come together um, and, and actually uh, are very uh, much connected uh, to each other. And one to add on there is, you know, people have seen the climate strikes that have been going on. That is a big issue um, right now, but really the same uh, people who uh, want to blame migrants for uh, the loss of jobs and so on, blame uh, Muslims and black people for the violence in society and ignore their own violence. They're also the people who want to ignore the fact that we've got 12 years to dramatically uh, change the world uh, that we live in. And Angela Davis was also somebody who was against war and so on. And so I think there's a case to be made about, you know, why um, so many people like Angela Davis, Frida Kahlo, um, Alexandra Kolontai, so many of these important women actually came to an anti-capitalist conclusion. They came to it wanting to explain the oppressions that they were fed up of. Um, and really, I think, um, if you... Uh, if there's something scary about seeing yourself as a revolutionary, let alone a Marxist, you really ought to uh, reconsider because I'm happy to call myself a revolutionary and a Marxist after a strong black woman like Angela Davis. Okay, yeah, I was lucky enough actually to go and see Angela Davis speak with Neymar and it was really a highlight. And what really struck me was how on every question, something really central to being a socialist, which is being on the side of the oppressed, Angela Davis is, and her international reach. I mean, she just had come into the Women's World Festival in London. It was a time when Corbyn was being attacked over the claims of anti-Semitism, and she was very clear to say, actually, to be critical of the state of Israel is not anti-Semitic, and she actually took that on as a whole new argument. But I also felt as well 
and it links a little bit to what you were saying about prisons, because actually she understands how class shapes many uh, issues. And she talked about how she started the contribution by saying, because she's a campaigner against prisons, by saying, and in the US, there's lots more women who are governors of prisons. And people in the audience started to clap as though this was a good thing. And she's like, no, this is not a good thing. Yeah, this is not liberation for women to lock up more women. And actually, class is shaping your experience there. And actually, if you think about it, about the people who get sent to prison, actually, it's poor people. I mean, there's a survey out this week showing that actually there's a massive rise in homelessness, uh, homeless women going to prison in Britain. Yeah, so it's not really about real it crime or whatever you want to call it in society, it's about actually sort of a real class issue. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of the things people get sent to prison for, they wouldn't go to prison for, to be honest. I don't think if you haven't got money to pay for things, or you have to beg, or you have to, you know, uh, steal because you haven't got enough money or whatever it is, I don't really think those are crimes. It's about a bigger problem in society, and people are criminalised for actually being poor under capitalism in terms of that alternative. But she sort of cut through that and understood, and I think the other thing as well was that she isn't just a past figure, she was very much embracing some of these new movements that are coming out and being part of them, movements that have, you know, women have been at the forefront of, but involve wider forces about Trump, about Bolsonaro, questions of refugees and racism, and it might be good, you know, if you want to talk about that, but I was very inspired of her as a, as a living person, taking on questions today and thinking about how class both shapes the experience of oppression, but also gives the power to challenge that as well. Um, I just wanted to say some more about um, Angela Davis's book, Women, Race and Class, that you mentioned, because I think it is still one of the best books available, and at its time it was an absolute path-breaking book that looks at the relationship between women, race and class, particularly looking at the movements in America. And I think what's so brilliant about it is that she looks at how that initial unity between the struggle for women's rights and black liberation really grew out of women's role in the abolitionist movement because once women started to raise their voice for the end of slavery, they had to, both black and white women, they had to fight for the right to be taken seriously as women. So the whole question of women being independent political actors and being taken seriously grew out of that struggle. So she talks about how unity is possible and how at various moments black and white women together have been absolutely central to the fight for women's rights and for... Um, black liberation and have been absolutely key to all of those movements but she also talks about how that movement fractures and how actually a section of the women's movement becomes dominated by the leadership of white middle class women who have a very different agenda to the original aims of the women who got involved around the abolitionist movement um, and actually are either willing to be opportunists and ignore the question of racism, or at their worst, are willing to pander to racism in order to try and recruit more white women who might be racist in the southern states of America. And she looks at how does that happen? How is that possible that that happens? And I think, without having time to go through all of her analysis, I think what's really interesting about the way that she picks through that, through um, a historical materialist analysis, really, is that she looks at the key question here isn't identity, the key question is politics. And the key question here is, do you have a class politics and do you have a politics that can go beyond the question of reformism? Because if your politics is just shaped by reformism, by winning 
gains equal rights within a rotten capitalist system, then you're going to have competition between different oppressed groups. Is it more important that black people get the vote or is it more important that women get the vote? It becomes a competition rather than it becomes a struggle for emancipation and for liberation. And that's why I think her politics are so amazing. Because as um, the last speaker said, her politics have carried through to today. Her politics are not based on identity. Even though she takes questions of identity very seriously, they're based on a politics of solidarity. And you can see that in the whole campaign to free Angela Davis and the number of people and the international reach of it and the black and white people involved in it. But you can see it today in the way that she talks about concepts arising from the movement today. She talks about intersectionality. Intersectionality is going to be of any use to our movement. It has to, she, she says it has to be about the intersectionality of struggles, not just of individual identities. So it has to be, how does the question of Palestine intersect with Black Lives Matter? How do these intersect with the movement for abolition of the prisons? I think she's got a lot to offer us today, and I think... She's an incredibly inspiring figure for many of us, and for many of us, you know, she's been a shining light through all of our political lives. Uh, yeah, I wanted to say uh, more about the prisons, because I think that uh, it uh, it's, was a really big issue, and there's a, a couple of things to say. One of the things is, just to start with Angela Davis, I think it's amazing that she was someone who, as Naomi was saying, was an academic. She was someone who came up through the whole university system and was studying that, but never divided off from, from, what, um, from arguments about what ordinary people were doing, which is something which I think um, you see quite a lot of academics these days who see it just as you, you fight within the university, but she was taking the fight outside. And one of the things that she was talking about in prisons was the enormous uh, struggles that were going on. Now, Emma mentioned the book um, Sold Out Brothers, which um, uh, was talking about the, the prison culture in America. Uh, and I think it's something that really people should read about because the whole idea of how prisons work in America um, and by implication in other capitalist countries is about oppression. Um, in America, it's absolutely tied up with race. Now, already, uh, Neymar and others have mentioned the Civil War, the end of the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. With the abolition of slavery, the old ruling class in the South instantly tried to find ways to keep the ex-slaves down and to stop them getting power, and one was to try and imprison them. There was a, they set up all sorts of new laws, black codes they were called, to try and say vagrancy, for instance, was made illegal and imprisonable at the time, and um, various things, vagrancy could include uh, not just not having a home or not having a job, but answering back to officers of the law and so on. This kind of thing was a place where you started seeing it as a way to oppress large groups of black people. Um, and wider, wider groups of white people. But it did mean that throughout the history of uh, the United States, you've had an enormously disproportionate amount of people in, in prison who are black. Um, and I agree with my earlier uh, contributions where people said, what are people in prison for in the first place? That one of the things that, uh, particularly in America, you have the idea people should worry about, you have to have all the prisons, America has the biggest prison population in the world, we need these prisons because otherwise these violent people will come out and uh, run down the rest of society. But actually, it's the prisons that keep the violence going, partly because you have a system where people are encouraged to be violent in the prisons. So shutting down the prisons and finding other ways to deal with social problems is a, it's a revolutionary demand, but it's a demand that actually suggests a way to make society better, and I think that's one of the things we should really admire Angela Davis for. I also saw Angela Davis a few years ago at the Women of the World Festival, and it was just after Donald Trump had got elected, and actually one of the first things she said 
was that the only good thing about Donald Trump is that has given everybody a mandate to resist, and I thought that was a fantastic expression, and I think it's been borne out, hasn't it, by the level of resistance and demonstrations and so on uh, 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 and so forth. It's absolutely right to say that, you know, for somebody who, who went through academia to then put everything on the line in terms of being actively engaged in the struggle is a, is a, is a fantastically important thing to do. And when she stands in solidarity with the oppressed, I just want to mention the question of trans oppression, actually, and the arguments that have gone on inside the, inside the women's movement over the question of, tra uh, uh, of transgender women in particular. Because when I saw her, she was absolutely brilliant on the question of transgender women. In actual fact, she did this whole uh, section of her talk about what would it mean if transgender women were the, she's called it the symbol, the symbol of the women's movement. And she talked about them as people who have had to struggle to be accepted. Struggle was really at the heart of a lot of the things that she talked about. And uh, 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 um, um, and so on and 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 uh, you know and, and so she was she quite clearly was placing herself on the side of trans women who've had to struggle to be accepted and that why the women's movement should accept them and it just might be worth because that, you know she's become a bit of an iconic figure inside the feminist movement but most of them decide to ignore the revolutionary bits of what she said I don't think there's that many people in the in the feminist movement who think it would be a good idea to abolish the, to, to to abolish the prisons for example but you know so I do think it's it might be worth if you find yourself in an argument with feminists over the question of trans women just to say well have you thought about what Angela Davis said about it because not all feminists actually agree with with what you're saying and actually some people think it's important that we stand with the oppressed because an injury to one is an injury to all. You know, united we stand, divided we fall. These are good. These are good expressions from the labour movement, and uh, uh, um, and so on. So that idea of struggle is really important, and I think I think Naomi's right. To, to say that the very slightly frustrating thing is that with all, all of this, you hear about struggle and about the class nature of the prison system and all the rest of it, you do want to just come out a little bit more and say, what is it about class struggle that is really truly revolutionary in terms of uniting the oppressed and fighting for a world um, without oppression? Um, I think with Angela Davis, what's quite interesting is how she's portrayed by individuals. Like, at the Woman of the World Transformed... Uh, oh, that's... At the woman of the world, um, I think there was, it was so packed out. There were like hundreds of black women who were there, um, and what's quite interesting is they see her as a figure, but not fully understand her politics, or are not fully willing to get into her politics and understand that she is a revolutionary and she is um, more than that. And I think what you see with her is a watering down of her politics, the same way you see it with Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. Um, making them just seem as a question of violence or non-violence, um, individuals who fought for, the, uh, for black liberation, but completely taking the, uh, contact away from the wider struggles. And I think what she does as well very much, I think she does it in this book very clearly, um, is talk about the struggles and the intersectionality of struggles, whether that be the, uh, in Ferguson, when they saw the militarisation of the police force, they made connections with what was happening in Palestine. And I think that's a massive step forward when you understand and make connections between struggles, but you have to take a, another step forward and understand where it's coming from and what is the fundamental root of it. Um, and when she talks about the prison system, I think it's right what um, Comrade has said, so forth as well. But when someone talks about abolishing the prison system, you also have to raise the question of why individuals are in the prison system, the level of racism, the level of attack on the working class, but also what is it in our system, in our society, that we have a prison system in the first place? Why do we criminalise people? Why do we have to have this? Why, don't we, why are people committing these certain things? And I think that's in those questions for individuals. Um, 
And I think, like, as the left, um, as revolutionaries, as Angela Davis is, she's still a part of the struggle, she's still a part of the movement. Um, she was one of the key figures in the Women's March after Trump was elected, and she still plays a massive role. And I think, as, as us, us as the left, we have to work a part of movements and struggles um, that fight oppression, um, like whether that be fighting the question of racism today and so forth. Um, but throughout that struggle, throughout that movement, we have to argue for politics and uh, a strategy that can win. I think whatever movement you go to, uh, there's all, after, um, I think it was the, a couple of years ago, there was a growth of the Black, Lib, um, Black Lives Matter movement within the UK. And I think, I remember being a part of it. There was loads of arguments and questions about what we should do and where we should go next. Some people were arguing for black companies and black owned businesses. Some people were just arguing for black faces in high places. And um, of course I was arguing for like revolution and so forth, but, <laughs> uh, but I think there's so many ideas and I think it doesn't necessarily mean you face a same level of oppression and um, racism that your ideas and what you think and the strategy that you want to go for is the same. And I think as revolutionaries and a part of the left, we have to argue those whatever movement we're a part of. We don't stand on the sidelines and just shout revolution. We are a part of the movement and the struggle and understand the importance of the working class in bringing people together. socialistworker.co.uk If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers Party or find out more about us, you can go to swp.org.uk If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on facebook.com slash socialistworkersparty On Twitter, at swpbritain Instagram is socialist underscore workers underscore party and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites including Spotify, Deezer, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker and iTunes. Thank you.